All right. And you know why the Baptists don't allow premarital sex, right? Because it could lead to dancing. It takes a second. It takes a second. I know. Can you say that word in church? Well, I just did. I don't know. Again, yeah, it was Mary and she's with the kids. Um, once again, if you're here for the first time, we apologize. But, uh, but that, that's who we are, you know. Um, we started out life as a recovery ministry, and we realized early on that it's the people who are able to be free to be themselves, that can be transparent, that can be honest, that are open about their imperfections and about the things that are driving them to the precipice and making their lives unmanageable are the ones who are ripe for change. We want to be ripe for change. And so this is who we are. You know, we will, we will just let everyone know that we are imperfect in what we're going through. And that's perfect. That's exactly, it's perfectly imperfect. It's exactly what we need. If you really take a look at the first century church, if you take a look at our scriptures at all, it is filled with imperfect people who weren't afraid to be recorded as imperfect people for all time. That's a beautiful thing. And so that's what we are. And, and we are together. Uh-oh. We're finding our way together here. Um, and we don't lay ourselves out by hierarchy. There's no senior pastor and there's no pyramid here. We're designated by roles, teaching pastor, recovery pastor, and, and different roles that we play. But we realize and recognize the org chart is flat. Everybody here is on the same plane. We're all in this together and trying to figure out things together. And that makes all the difference in the world. You only have to be a couple of steps ahead of someone else to be able to give them a hand. And that's what we're, we're looking for, just everybody giving each other a hand. And that's kind of what we've been doing for the last, wow, it's getting to be uh, 50 days now, I guess. When we started Lent, we were going through Lent and we were trying to look at Lent in a different way. Uh, many of us growing up, uh, Lent was a time of just forced deprivation. You know, we had to give up something that we really liked in order to show penance for our sins. But we were saying, hey, how about if we take that and turn it around? We're going to go ahead and, and maybe give some things up. We're going to go into a voluntary sensory deprivation. Maybe turn things down, you know, turn things aside, clear a space, but not just as a negative, passive penance, but also as an active, proactive way of being able to clear the decks, to be able to see who God really is in our lives. And so the Sundays through Lent, we were taking a look at the scriptures that are typically used in the Holy Week liturgy to show how they give us a path. Jesus on Palm Sunday, when he comes in and he says, and the, the uh, authorities tell him, Tell these people who are shouting for you to be quiet. They're blaspheming. He said, even if they were quiet, even the rocks would cry out. That idea of singing rocks, that idea of creation itself being a testimony to the truth is all around us. It's always. But we're not aware of it because we're not tuned in. And so to start practicing presence, to start practicing awareness was what we started Lent with. And we talked about centering prayer and meditation. We talked about mindfulness throughout our day. We talked about how it is that we actually can practice being more aware so we can literally hear the rock singing. We can see God in each other. And when you do that, when you start practicing awareness, the first thing that's going to come up to you is a, an awareness 
of your set belief systems, those things that are really entrenched, those things that are limiting, those things that are obsessive and compulsively taking you into places that you have not wanted to go, yet you find yourself going time after time. And so Jesus' cleansing of the temple, overturning the tables, breaking up the status quo because the temple was no longer a source of spiritual truth for the people. It had literally become the den of thieves that he needed to overturn to show the people this system is broken. It can be right again, but it's going to start from the inside out. It's going to start from you being willing to overturn your own interior tables, to challenge your set beliefs. Once you become aware of them, to challenge them and put them down, to let a new truth come in. These are huge pieces. And then what happens when you do that? What happens if you really are willing, become willing to challenge your set beliefs, to lay those things down and see what's really right in front of you? You gain the realization that our God is a foot-washing God. On Monday, Thursday, at the Last Supper, Jesus strips down and washes his disciples' feet, and he's showing them graphically in a way that they could barely accept that their master, the one that they had been following for years, was really their servant. He'd been trying to tell them that for years, and it wasn't breaking through. And so he uses this graphic illustration to say, I am your servant. I exist to serve you and everyone that I love, which is everyone that there is. And so we see that there's this change. This God that we put at the top of that pyramid, at the top of that hierarchy, is the one who's actually supporting us, is kneeling before us and serving us. It it even hurts to say that in many ways, because this is the God of the universe, the Alpha and the Omega, and yet at the same time, servant. Jesus is forcing us through this way, through this path, through this entry tunnel, if you will, to confront the reality of our God. He came to serve, not to be served. He is one with the Father, exactly doing what the Father does. The Father exists to serve. If we are going to be one with the Father ourselves, one with Jesus, if we are going to move in the Father's will, then we will learn to take pleasure in existing to serve. It's really difficult for us to get our heads around this. And if we don't go through that process, if we're not willing to go through this process, then when Jesus rides in on Palm Sunday, on the colt, the foal of the donkey, we will miss the hour of our visitation. We will be looking for him as the people did when he did this 2,000 years ago, through the prism of our need, through our desires, and we won't see him as he is. We will miss him. We will miss as he moves through us. And we said, Every moment is Palm Sunday. Every moment Jesus is riding through. Are we going to be able to see him in the faces of everyone around us? In the moment? In creation? And then on Easter Sunday, the people were still looking for the living among the dead. Jesus' closest friends and followers still didn't get what it was that he was saying. But 50 days later, they did at Pentecost that fruition came through because they stayed on it. They kept showing up even though they didn't understand. All of this is our school. All of this is our teacher and our tutor. All of this is showing us how it works. We don't just pray passively and God fills us. God fills us all the time. 
There's never a moment that God isn't filling us. Are we going to be aware of that? Are we going to use that to empower us and move us through? That's the question that Jesus is really asking us. And this is the process that we've been on. So now post-Pentecost, after the Spirit rumbles through the room, after the tongues of fire descend, after we are filled, and we are filled with this kind of awareness, this kind of conviction of the power that is there in God's Spirit, what does life look like then? What should our lives look like once we are Spirit-filled, once we are born again, once we have drunk the living water? All the different metaphors that Jesus uses for us, all the images. Is it blissful? Is that, is that what we're looking for? Is life going to be blissful? Is it going to be certain? Are we going to know things for sure? Well, what I'd like to present to you is that life after Pentecost is going to be a heck of a lot like life before Pentecost. You know, it's still going to be difficult. Nothing has changed, and yet everything is changed. Life remains what it is externally, in our circumstances. It remains difficult. It remains hard. But we have changed interiorly, which allows us to deal with it differently, to have a different attitude toward it, to see things differently, to see them as God sees them. And that changes everything, even though life has not changed itself. Life isn't going to get magically easier because we did this. Now, this may not be what you wanted to hear. You know, you may have been looking for uh, something else. <laughs> you might be feeling a little bit shortchanged right now. In fact, you, you, know, you might be thinking it's time to look for another church. I don't know. But before you go, let me develop this a little bit more so that we can see what is really at issue here, what the scriptures are really telling us about this whole process. Let me ask you this. How many of you have worked in your life for a straight salary, or for guaranteed hours? Okay. How many of you have worked as a freelancer or worked at a job that was project by project, okay, like, a, like construction, or owned your own business? Let's see all those hands. How many of you have done both at different times in your life? Great. Okay. You know the difference between the two, right? To work for a straight salary, to work for guaranteed hours in maybe a corporate type of environment where each month is guaranteed. You know what you're going to get, and you're going to get it, and you have this, this uh, sense of certainty. You have this sense of maybe some control. You can budget. You can plan forward. You know there's going to be annual raises and increases. You know that there's going to be 401ks, and there's going to be health care maybe. All these things are baked into the cake, and you know that. The last job that I had like that um, I hate to tell you how long ago it was, but I was working as a director of communications for a healthcare firm, and that was the situation. And then I left that to go freelance. Uh, I was doing marketing communications. I left that to go freelance into marketing communications, and boy, did my world change. When you are living project to project, when you are living um, just job to job, everything is different, isn't it? Nothing is secure anymore. Think about the jobs that you've had like that. You are praying for the next job. You're working. I realized I had three jobs. I had to get the work, I had to do the work, and I had to collect for the work. So I suddenly had three jobs instead of one. But the ups and the downs were crazy. You know, sometimes you'd be just flying, and every time you got a job, it was like a mini party and a celebration. I can pay the bills for another month. All right. You know, it was a completely different experience to live life like that. 
And now later in the, in the last few years, we've actually started our own business, and that's a whole other level of this. You know, when you've got your money invested and you've got this and that and you're watching day to day budgets and it's a completely different experience. The salary, the, the set salary or hours smoothed out life. It filled in those lows, but it also shaved off the highs, didn't it? It felt like there was something more. There was more excitement. There was more energy when I was working project to project or now owning our business, trying to do that. It's scarier, but it's also more exhilarating. There's a difference between the two. And so keeping that in mind, keep that in mind, and and if you have that personal experience, hold on to that. And let's ask this question. Is there a basic model for the way that we could, should be living our lives in full awareness of God's presence? Is there a model for it? What does it look like? That's what I want to talk about this morning. Now, we're going to go to the scriptures, of course, because that's our model for everything. The, Hebrew, the ancient Hebrew people were a thoroughly communal people. Okay, They were completely communal, as most Eastern peoples are, and they actually saw themselves and referred to themselves often as a single person, metaphorically. Because they so worked as a unit, all 12 tribes, the nation of Israel, they actually referred to themselves as a single person. You know, many passages in scripture refer to Israel as God's son. You know, Out of Egypt I called my son, is one of the prophet's lines. He's talking about the nation of Israel being pulled out at the time of the exodus, but calling him son, calling him a single person. And if you think about Abram, Avram, soon to be called Abraham, being called out of what we're going to say, quote-unquote, a salaried life in Haran. So his father is called out of Ur of the Chaldees, which is in Mesopotamia. They make it all the way up to what is northern Syria today, right on the border of Turkey in in a city called Haran. It was a developed um, center, an urban center. It was rich in, in natural resources because it sat between the headwaters of the Tigris and Euphrates. So you could irrigate, you had land, you had crops, and they had a good existence there, a good life there, a solid life there, one that you could count on. And then God calls Abraham out of Haran and says, you need to go down to Canaan, Kena'an in Hebrew. Now, Kena'an is very different than Haran. It doesn't have the rivers. It doesn't, it's, it's basically an arid place. They li- were living a nomadic existence. So he goes from a set, settled, salaried existence to now a nomadic, freelance existence as God calls him into Canaan. right? And then three generations later, from Abraham to Isaac, from Isaac to Jacob, from Jacob to his 12 sons, and to Joseph, who is sold into slavery in Egypt and rises to second in power after the Pharaoh. And then a famine hits Canaan and all of the 12 tribes, as they are, end up in Egypt, back into a set existence. Another country set beside a massive river system, the Nile this time, that floods annually, you can irrigate, and they're there for over 400 years. So from a set irrigated existence to a nomadic existence, back to an irrigated existence next to another river. And now 400 years later, here's Moses pulling them out of that situation, 
back into the wilderness, back into nomadic life. So we see Israel, the nation, as an individual, moving back and forth between these two types of existences. Moses institutes a law. As soon as the people are out of the clutches of Egypt and they're camped around Mount Sinai, he institutes a law for them that for all intents and purposes takes them as far from their cultural experience as Egypt as is humanly possible. And it's interesting. Why do that? Why suddenly is the focus completely on this life as opposed to the next life? Think about the Egyptians. They were a death-obsessed culture. They mummified their people. They were focused on the next life. They were, everything was, their, their wealth was produced in order to give to their leaders so that they could have this existence in the next life. Their holiest book was the Book of the Dead. And here's the Jews coming out of that. And their law says that talking to the dead, first of all, is forbidden, punishable by death, necromancy. Right? Even touching a corpse makes you ritually unclean and you have to clean yourself again. Everything about the Jews is now focused on this life. I wanted to read you just a a few paragraphs to see if we can really bring this point home because this is an essential point to understand why the Jews looked the way they did, why they believed what they did. Israel was constantly confronted and fascinated with Egypt. Of all its neighbors, it was the land of the Nile that possessed the most excessive cult of the dead. No people were so obsessed with death and afterlife as were the ancient Egyptians. Death must have continually preoccupied the Egyptians with the construction of pyramids for kings and huge burial monuments for high officials, with the decoration and outfitting of of these tombs, the cenotaphs and the commemorative chapels, with the preparation of statues and stelae, offering tables and sarcophagi, wooden coffins, the books of the dead, with the procurement of mortuary offerings and the conducting of mortuary rituals, Nowhere in the ancient world was there such a fully established belief in the afterlife. The faithful in Israel saw or experienced all that up close, and they knew that such a mythicizing of death, such an entrancement with the afterlife, could not be God's will, because it drew attention away from this world, which was God's goal, and fixed on on another and fixed it on another. It replaced trust in God. It replaced trust in God with concern for one's own eternal life and eternal fate. What was decisive was Israel's insight that its God was a God for this life, a God who willed and desired this world. The world was God's creation, God's plan, God's joy, which God would not abandon in spite of the chaos created by humans. God's love for the world was revealed in love for God's people, who were to be a blessing for the whole world. Always alive in Israel's cultural memory was the knowledge that it was sheltered within the hands of God. God was in its midst, standing by the people's side and not letting Israel fall. God had entrusted Israel with a land, a beautiful and precious land flowing with milk and honey, Again and again, this fundamental trust in God was put into words, in many narratives, but above all, in the Psalms. So we could interpret the Psalms completely in terms of earth and imminence. And that word imminence means God's presence here and now, filling, infusing everything here and now. 
But if we look more closely, we can see that the psalmist speaks out of a confidence that extends beyond the borders of death. But where does this assurance come from? It certainly does not rest on dreams of the afterlife or speculations on eternity, the way we do as Christians. The Jews have none of that in their culture, none of that in their writing. They don't talk about the afterlife. They have no set doctrine about the afterlife. So where does this assurance come from? Not on these speculations, but rather the psalmist always sees the face of God who constantly accompanies her or him. So the one who prays the psalms is already living now in this life out of an experience of the sheltering presence of God. For such a person, death is no catastrophe. Israel's faith remains altogether earthly, but at depth it is open to an action of God that encompasses even the realm of death and the underworld. The psalmist lives in profound confidence that God will not abandon her or him, even in death. People who pray the psalms know that they can trust God absolutely. This is a huge difference This is the genius of the Hebrews. Out of all the people of the ancient world, they're the ones who came to this conclusion that God is one and God is now. For the Hebrews, you only get one world at a time. (laughs) What a concept, right? One world at a time. And God is always the God of the world that we are in right now. If we want to meet God, we've got to be here now in this world, immersing in this world because of our heads in the next one. Where the heck are we? We're nowhere. God only has one world at a time for us. Whether this world or the next, you live in the world that you're in. This is the genius of the Jews. This is what they're trying to get us to see. And with full trust in God, that God is who he says he is, then everything is going to be all right. We don't need to worry about things that are not present to us if we just take care of what is present to us. This is what the law of Moses is trying to get across. Now, initially, Israel was a completely full theocracy. That means they saw God as their king, God as their leader. And there really wasn't anything in between. They didn't have a set federal or or, or centralized government. They had the 12 tribes and they had their own you know, local chieftains and leaders and, and clan leaders. And when there was a national emergency, when you know, the barbarians were at the gates, then the judges would come to the fore. And these were people that came out of obscurity, called by God to lead the people, to galvanize them, to pull them together as needed, to do whatever had to happen to get through the emergency. And then they slid back into obscurity again. Boy, I can think of a few politicians I'd like to have with that kind of arrangement, wouldn't you? You know, we call them when we need them and then we send them home. You know, and then we go back to local governance. A beautiful system, but it only works if the people themselves at the grassroots level are completely focused on God. And that's what our country was really built on as a, as a republic. You know, you read the founding fathers, they'll say the only way this works is with a people that have a moral base, that, that have a foundation themselves because they're literally governing themselves. And if they can't do that, then it's going to collapse into some tor- sort of autocracy, you know, which is what we're seeing now with the rise of... So 
it's ever thus. There's nothing new under the sun, right? But here is what Israel was originally intended to be, this pure theocracy with this local governing at the, at the tribe and the clan level. But you get out a few generations, and the people are clamoring for a king. And the last judge was Samuel. And they pressure Samuel when he's old, because his sons are not up to the task, for a king. And finally, with God's consent, he relents. Samuel is highly offended that they should ask for a king, because they think that they're rejecting him. And God says, no, they're not rejecting you. They're rejecting me. I am supposed to be their king. But God relents. He's a gentleman. He gives you what you ask for, what you push for. And so they got their king, and it didn't work out so well. First they got Saul. He was a mess. David was a little better, a lot of blood on his hands. But the whole history of the Jewish kings is not stellar, and they eventually are taken over by foreign occupiers. But this is what the people wanted. You know, This rejection of God's rule was their, was their heritage. But initial, initially, originally, the Jews were supposed to live in a day-to-day trust in God, not their own institutions, not the things that they put together, not the things that the other nations were doing. It was supposed to be their daily trust in God. But there is another really beautiful illustration of what their life was about and supposed to be about spiritually as they moved into the promised land. I want to read you another couple paragraphs. And this is about the former and latter reigns. We talked about the fact that Israel didn't have a river system like Egypt did, like Assyria and Babylon did, like Abraham had in Haran up in northern Syria. But they had the reigns. And the reigns are cyclical. They happen at specific times during the year. And this is what the people could depend on. And they had names. There's actually four names for rain in in Hebrew because it's so important to the people's survival. And the former and latter rains are called Yore and Melkosh. And even though it's fairly late in the year in terms of the Western calendar, the rains that begin in the fall, okay, October, November, are known as the Yore or the early rains since it's the start of the rainy season. These early rains are reason to be glad after a hot, dry summer, and the ground can be broken up, ready to work the fields. So during the summer, it's just bakes in Israel, from ancient times to to present times. And there was planting that went on in the spring, but the summer sun would bake those plants down. The rains in the fall would break the soil up, revitalize it, and the plants could come back. You didn't get those rains, you're going to starve through the winter and you would not survive. Those rains were absolutely essential to the people. These early rains are reason to be glad after a hot, dry summer and the ground can be broken up, ready to work the fields. Towards the springtime, around the time of Passover, Israel will have the latter rains, known as the Melkosh, necessary for the ripening of the barley and the wheat. The word for the former rains, yore, comes from the same root as to shoot or cast or to teach I love the way Hebrew word roots work. Like an arrow being shot to its target, or information being directly delivered from teacher to pupil, the yore rains are sent down to soften up the ground, ready for the first round of planting. In fact, God's teaching is also compared to the sending of rain. In Deuteronomy 32.2, May my teaching drop as the rain, my speech distill as the dew like gentle rain upon the tender grass and like showers upon the herb. 
The latter rains, Melkosh, are much harder rains that would have just caused flooding and devastation if they had come earlier on the dusty dry ground. But these latter spring rains are essential for the agricultural cycle too. The Geser calendar, an archaeological relic with inscriptions from the time of Solomon, tells us that in January and February time, there was a second round of later planting in ancient Israel's agricultural year, called the Lakesh. The word for these harder, latter rains, Melkosh, is related to Lakesh. The latter downpours can more easily penetrate the softer ground and bring forth the second harvest for the spring. I want you to try to imagine how important these rains are to these people. It's hard for us. We can turn on a tap and we get water, right? Try to imagine in an area like Israel, in an area like ours, if we didn't have our irrigation systems, what would it be like? How important would these rains be? They are literally life and death. They are literally, whether you can feed your family or you're going to watch your children starve, this is how important they were. Each rain that came, each rain that fell, was like getting that freelance job. (laughs) You know, you're marketing, you're marketing, you're working, you're working, you're meeting with people and you're pitching and you get the job and you can pay the bills for another month. Each rain that fell was like that. My crops have a chance. I will be able to make the harvest. I will be able to get through the winter. The people prayed for rains. Absolutely prayed. The three main religious festivals of ancient Israel, and to this day, were centered around these rains. They originally were agricultural festivals. The one that happened in the fall, Sukkot, is the one that happened right at the early rains. It was the prayer for rain. It was a celebration when the rains came. It was also the grape and, and, and the olive harvest. But it was preparing for this planting season leading to spring. It was also the, uh, the Feast of Booths. And it was a, a remembrance of Israel's time in the wilderness when they lived as nomads. But the, the Sukkah, the actual booths, were actually the the type of makeshift shelters that farmers would make in the fields as they were harvesting so they didn't have to go back and forth. They just slept there and worked there and got that harvest in as they needed to. All of this wrapped up into that fall festival. And that was one of the three pilgrimage festivals, the Shalosh Regalim, where everyone had to go to Jerusalem and celebrate there. And then, of course, in the spring you have Pesach, which is Passover, and it commemorates the exodus from Egypt and the passing over of the angel of death, but it also has to do with the planting or the harvesting of the barley, which is the first grain to ripen, and it's the celebration of those latter rains that are falling. And then seven weeks later, 50 days later, is Shavuot. And Shavuot, or the Feast of Weeks, is the wheat harvest. And so each one of these festivals that were so ingrained in their culture was built around the importance of these rains. And it's hard for us to have any clue as to how deep this went. This was their life. This was their annual cycle. It was built into their understanding of their God, and it was built into the cycles of life. The timing and the reliability of these rains was critical, and the people were completely dependent on their rains. They had a close sense of connection to the land, to nature, to their God, all of this. 
They were in it. They were part of it. Part of the cycles of nature. Not above it. You know, not living with everything concreted over and apart from nature as we do, as even the ancient urban people could do with their irrigation systems, with their set crops. These people were living from wind to wind and rain to rain in a way completely dependent, completely dependent on God. See, we can control rivers, right? We can divert them, we can channel them, we can irrigate with them, we can harness their power. But you can't do that with the rain. The rain either comes or it doesn't come. You can't do that with rain. And so there's a whole different way of living if you're going to live with the rains. And this is what the scriptures are talking to us about. They're showing us about the way that it feels like, what it looks like to live. This is the way the Israelites were supposed to be living from day to day. Look at what Jesus tells us at Deuteronomy. Jesus, Deuteronomy? I don't think so. How about Jesus at Mark 4? Let's do that. Verse 26. We read this one a few weeks ago, but it comes right back up again. Jesus was saying the kingdom of God is like a man who casts seeds upon the soil, and he goes to bed at night and gets up by day, and the seed sprouts and grows. And how? He himself does not know. The soil produces crops by itself. First the blade, then the head, then the mature grain in the head. But when the crop permits, he immediately puts in the sickle because the harvest has come. I want to read that to you again in the message version because he just kind of puts a little bit finer point on it, I think. And Jesus said, God's kingdom is like a a seed thrown on a field by a man who then goes to bed and forgets about it. The seed sprouts and grows. He has no idea how it happens. The earth does it all without his help. First a green stem of grass, then a bud, then the ripened grain. And when the grain is fully formed, he reaps harvest time. (laughs) Jesus is giving us images of dependence. We don't know how this works. We don't control it. You know, we know we got seed and water and fertilizer. We do these things, but what's really happening under the ground? We have no clue. We can just go to bed, let it do its thing, show up when we need to to help and weed and do the. But really, all the work is being done by a power that is completely greater than ourselves, and we're dependent on that doing its thing, completely apart from us. Take a look at Luke 12 at verse 16. And he told them a parable. Jesus told them a parable saying, the land of a rich man was very productive. And he began reasoning to himself saying, what shall I do since I have no place to store my crops? And then he said, this is what I shall do. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And then I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have many good things laid up for your many years to come. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, you fool, This very night, your soul is required of you. And now who will own what you have prepared? So is the man who stores up treasures for himself and is not rich toward God. This idea of us being able to control our outcomes, to store up everything, to to put a, a pin in every contingency, as if we could really do that. It's not possible. Even when we think that we've got the river harnessed, even when we think that we've got all the 401k plans and all the retirement plans and everything set, it's just an illusion. Because the truth of the matter, we are as dependent 
even in that situation, as the freelancer or the farmer, upon the rains that come when they come. And all we can do is pray and celebrate when the rain falls. Life is really lived that way. A lot of the facade is being taken off. We know that working for 30 years for a company and getting the gold watch and the pension is not the way things work anymore. Maybe that's partly a good thing because stripping away some of the illusion for us allows us to see life as life is really lived with that kind of dependence day to day. This is where Jesus is trying to bring us back to, to get us to understand that the nature of Jesus' way is really anti-institutional. We can't create institutions that guarantee for us every outcome that we want. We can show up to plantings, and we can show up to harvest, and we can show up to rains, but that's a very different thing. As soon as we build some big edifice, irrigate and control our outcomes, we lose the edge on trust, don't we? What are we trusting in? No longer our dependence on the love of God, but on our own ability to build things strong enough, to build things big enough, dense enough, that we feel safe. Now, I don't want to cast any aspersions on anybody who works for a salary or set hours in here. You can work for a salary, you can work for set hours and be just as fully aware of God's presence and your connection with him. And there are those of us that are working freelancing, working for businesses who haven't got a clue about trust in our basket cases, right? So it's not about actually what you're doing, it's about the interior attitude toward what you're doing. But at least these two different modes of living can give you some insight along with Israel's experience, about what this looks like. You know? We speak about Christian companies. We speak about Christian churches. You know, there really is no such thing. There's no such thing as a Christian company. What's a Christian company? You know, a company that puts a fish sticker on, on its logo, you know, that, that says it's going to operate by certain principles. There really isn't a Christian company because... Companies can't be Christian. Companies can't be followers. Companies can't be compassionate. They're institutions. People can. You can have a company full of Christians. You can't even have a Christian church. But you can have a church full of Christians. And then you have to ask, are they decent Christians or not? Because it's not enough just to say you're a Christian. You know, we've got to get right down to it. What is it that we're really talking about here? It's not about the institution. It's not about what we build See, if we take the trappings of our faith, the trappings of our religion, the material things, the rituals, you know, the, the iconography, whatever it is that we take about a religion, if we cling to that, then it's like the rivers of Egypt. It's like books of the dead. We're trying to control things instead of just pushing off and letting the rains fall. It's a very different experience that Jesus is pointing us to here. One that we need to try to grasp so when the fear naturally takes us to want to control, we can start to release again and just come back to watching for hints of weather, cloud, and form taking place right in front of us. We can't afford to take our eyes off trust. The illusion of control will kill it every time. I wanted to uh, close by reading another journal entry. 
And uh, this one comes from 1993. So it's been a few moons ago. But this was a time in my life when I was just starting to get an inkling. Me, characteristically, as I was starting to learn about my faith and I was also a pastoral candidate, you know, I wanted to take this thing by the throat. I wanted to grab it. I wanted to learn everything that I could learn. I wanted to know exactly the right truth so that I could have my spirituality. And I started to realize as I was doing this more and more that I was going in the wrong direction. But on Tuesday, September 21st in 1993, I wrote a quote from Thomas Akempis. O God, who art the truth, make me one with thee in everlasting love. It wearieth me oftentimes to read and listen to many things. In thee is all I wish for and desire. Let all the doctors hold their peace. Let all creation keep silence before thee. Speak thou alone to me. I put this here because I can't do any better. And so it perfectly captures my state of mind. And I can't believe I just happened to read it today. True to my form, I'm trying so hard to learn. I read the scriptures. I talk to my pastors. I look for ways to go back to school for the theological training. I go to retreats. I meet a priest who introduces me to a bookstore where I find Merton and Nowen, who leads me to Anthony and the Desert Fathers and Augustine and Aquinas and Camus and Dante and Maritain and Eckhart and John of the Cross and Hopkins and so many others I've never read who speak of Aristotle and Plato and the classical languages I can't read and the preachers on the radio speak of Moody and Wesley and Calvin and Luther while I watch the fish and dove bumper stickers go by on the freeway with Jesus being sung to me in a thousand different ways in songs that begin to all sound alike, making background for talk shows that try to explain basic doctrine to confused callers debating the fine points of theology and social values, premillennium, postmillennium, pre-trip rapture, pro-life choice, gay rights, family values, moral decay, church and state, Catholic and Protestant, conservative and liberal, Mutt and Jeff. Turn it off. Shut it up. Snuff it out. Noise by any other name sounds the same. I stand in front of the congregation at church Sunday mornings, my microphone between us. We sing. We sing loud. We sing loud into amplifiers that make us louder, almost loud enough to be heard over the drums and the piano and the guitar, well over the congregation who sings back at us. I sing the words of praise, think the notes that I must hit. I watch the people sing and sway and clap and sometimes dance and sometimes cry. And I wonder if anything is going on here. What are we doing? I asked you last Sunday in the midst of all that noise, in the midst of my noisy week, trying to think through my cluttered brain. Then, down in front, kneeling at the steps, an elderly woman is transfixed in prayer, eyes closed, mouth moving, hands upraised. What is she feeling? Is it real? Is it you, Lord? The pastor comes by and lays his hand on her shoulder for a moment before moving on. And the look on her face makes me smile and frees up a tear to be wiped away. And I know that you put that look on her face. And I thank you for allowing me to help by being part of her experience. I don't get a chance to ask her, but maybe she gets that with her hair in a net and only a round wound up clock uh, ticking away as accompaniment. And maybe all this is just unnecessary. And it is. And I know it. But you use it anyway. 
and give it the meaning it could never have on its own. But I realize more and more that I won't find you very often in the noise, Lord. And when I do, you won't speak to me as clearly or as longly as you do on these silent pages. Not that you couldn't, but I can't hear as well, listen as well. I'm finding myself, who and how I am, through the measure of your presence in my life. Those activities, those modes and methods that bring me close to you are those that match the nature of my spirit, my silent spirit that doesn't speak, but knows when it's home, or at least getting close. So I will use the apparent magnitude of your presence as my sextant to guide myself through the maze of books and sermons and songs and t-shirts and Christian gift shops that I may stumble across on my way home to you. We have a choice. We have a choice every single day. We can try to take control. We can try to take our life and our spirituality by the throat and irrigate it, right? Make it ours. Or we can just bless the rains and be grateful as they're falling over us. Let them fall. Even as we continue to work and work hard in gratitude in the midst of the falling. It's our choice. Jesus is writing into our life every moment, asking us to choose. Where is our trust? Be aware. Overturn your tables and realize what is right in front of you here and now. Let's pray. Father, once again, thank you for the liturgy. Thank you for their scriptures. Thank you for the trail of breadcrumbs that you've left for us to follow back to you. Thank you for all the people that have taken this journey before us, that are taking this journey now, that can help us and instruct us, who have written things down or are willing to take time and tell us and show us. Help us to become the kind of students that are ready to be taught to see the teachers that are right in front of us all the time, to see you and your spirit right in front of us all the time. Father, we want you. We just don't know how to get to you often. And sometimes we're just too afraid. Help us to break through. Help us to take the small steps that will continue to move us in the direction of your spirit. We're so grateful to be here this morning. We're so grateful to be able to share this with each other. Thank you for empowering us, for giving us everything we need. And thank you for loving us the way that you do. And we can only do any of this because you did it first. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Let's all stand.